Down the ones that mother gives you Don't do anything at all Go ask Alice When she's ten feet tall And if you go chasing rabbits And you know you're going to fall Tell them a hookah Smoking caterpillar has given you the call. Call Alice. All right, is this better? Let's see. Is this better, you guys? Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. I have to wait. Yes. Okay. Perfect. I'm really sorry about that, you guys. Um, it's been a crazy morning. I got in. There we go. Okay, this should be better. I'm pretty sure it's better, right, guys? Okay. I, I got in extremely late. I had a lot of meetings to go to uh, this morning. I had a lot of things uh, to get done. I'm all over the place today. But um, so I, I played that song, Alice, because I wanted to introduce you guys to a concept that um, may sound foreign to you. Uh, while everyone thinks we're a constitutional republic, a democracy, a democratic socialist, you know, community, <laughs> uh, socialist, communist, you name it, uh, it's all wrong. Um, I am going to uh, demonstrate for you how these Harvard yuppies sometimes get it right, even though they package it in a way that can you know, get them heard more uh, by the um, uh, leading regime, the United Nations, um, they do get it right sometimes. And today we're going to be introduced to that, uh, along with a barrage of reigning insiders helping James O'Keefe do exactly what he does best, which is show you the, the swamp on the inside. And why is this important? It is important because the one thing people need to understand is that our government, the way it is functioning right now, is exactly how competitive authoritarianism operates. That is the term that I'm going to introduce you to today. Not a lot of people have talked about it, but in just let me just give you the bullet points while we get into it. Competitive authoritarianism is giving the illusion that there's a democracy. It gives you the complete illusion that there is a democracy. But the difference is, is that competitive authoritarianism has access to every single piece of media. Now, there is a clip of uh, Stephen Levitsky who actually coined this term with Way uh, over a decade ago. I think it's like 15 years ago. And I remember when I uh, read his paper back in 2009, I was kind of blown away as to how the people of, of that day, of 2009, still haven't gotten it. How they're still not understanding that they believe that they are in a democracy. It's what one may consider kind of like a hybrid regime, uh, but the one is a um, virtual 
democracy. It is an illusion of a democracy because it's a pseudo democracy in, ex in essence. That's basically what it is. And so if you believe this or not, his paper was actually published in the journal for democracy. And that's what, you know, stupefies me more is that people have access to this information. And again, as I always say, in the age of information, ignorance is a choice. And many people may say, well, you know, we can't see everything. That's correct. You can't. But you can want to know about at least your local community because then this wouldn't kind of take your breath away. Because the rise of competitive authoritarianism entered the picture right after World War II. One, I would say, not two, one. And while many may coin what we see in Africa uh, as that, Africa was the testing ground for those really in charge. So that's going to be the topic of today. Um, but before we get to that, I wanted to express to you. All right, right to Washington. Washington. Oops, and show you, sorry. Something that will be coming to fruition soon, and it'll make sense to you soon. This is a clip not a lot of people have, but I do. Here we go. Now where, now where the, the Senate, Senate Intelligence, Intelligence Committee is considering... Dang, somebody doesn't want this out. Dang. What we did is take a look at the... What is going on? Okay, let me, uh, let me turn this off. I'm going to turn that off. Dang. Dang, I'm going to turn that off. Okay, I turned it off. Whoa, 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 whoa. That was nuts. Okay, is it still on echo right now? Can't be on echo right now. Is there an echo right now? I'm having an echo right now? Huh. Um, I shouldn't be an echo right now. <laughs> I don't see why there would be an echo. Okay. Dang, nobody wants you to see that video. Let me try it again. Let me try it again. If it echoes, I'll stop it. Okay. See if we could do this again. And no, we can't. Of course not. Yep. We're not going to get it. Why, why is this always happening when I want to talk John Brennan? Like, come on. I don't even warn. Okay. It's an echo of my voice. I see. conflict of interest in this person's opinion. Uh, and the other thing we found here is we found out who John Brennan's boss was before he started working for Barack Obama. And it was this man, a man named Damien Pearl. We have a picture here. He was the CEO of Global Strategies Group. And he was the man that Brennan reported to in this corporate hierarchy that he worked in. Pearl is a former British Royal Marine, uh, and he made most of his fortune uh, working in Iraq in the security business, doing what they call the guns, gates, and Gurkhas business in Iraq. So this is John Brennan's boss before he started working for Barack Obama. It, it sounds very sort of like juicy 007-ish, a little bit cloak and dagger, but at the same time, there's nothing to suggest that anything inappropriate was going on here, right? In That's terms right. of we should, John we should Brennan's life that. in the private sector. That's right. I didn't talk to anybody who suggested that John Brennan ever did anything inappropriate uh, while he was in the private sector. Uh, what I did talk to were so, several people who questioned sort of why we need this private intelligence structure 
in any case, why do we have global private security firms that are operating in Beijing and Washington and Baghdad at the same time? And, and this is an entirely taxpayer-fueled entity. So you the know the answer, you know the answer to that. It's the way the U.S. Army could say, we don't have operatives in South America during the drug wars. They didn't, but they were paying mercenaries to be down there. Yeah, look, a lot of this is done in a very hidden way. It's a very murky world. We had to sift through a lot of corporate records to find this corporate structure to figure out that Global Strategies Group, for example, is uh, registered in Luxembourg, not in England. Uh, it, there are subsidiaries of subsidiaries. Some of these companies are spun out, go public, go private again. Uh, it's kind of hard to keep track of them, and therefore, they're easily lost in the shuffle. That might be an advantage, right, if you're in the intelligence mm -hmm. game. Ah. Absolutely. It sounds fascinating. And for our viewers who are who have the interest peaked, you can read a full report on cnbc.com that was back in the day when they used to do reporting did you guys get to hear it did you guys get to hear it or no okay i hope that you guys got to hear that because it was really important that you hear it um i'll i'll, I'll put that out later so um it's it's quite fascinating how all of this is stalling it's super stalling damn really super stalling. It's just driving me insane. Um, I think it could be because I'm on YouTube too and they throttle it. So I'm just going to have to disconnect those feeds. I find when I stream to all the other ones as well, except for Trovo and Twitch, um, they tend to uh, minimize my ability to stream. So I apologize for you guys on YouTube and Facebook. You can come over to Twitch. It's free and Trovo while I'm live. So I apologize. Gosh, darn it. Um, and Facebook and, uh, I, I, am so sorry, but I have to, it's, it's not working. So I'm going to have to remove them. You guys, uh, it's not working correctly. So here we go. There we go. So this should be a lot better for those of you that are on Twitch. Twitch should be just fine. I'm streaming better now. Uh, people just need to get on Twitch. I, I can't say much on it. I'm sorry. Uh, they keep throttling. I'm going to try this again. Let's see if this works, okay? really need you guys to see this because um, it's really important. Here we go. Let's see. All right. Let's do this again. All right. To Washington now where the Senate Intelligence Committee There we go. This should be good. Guys, I can't play that video on the system uh, you know, for me, I came in a little bit delayed, uh, and that's because uh, I had meetings and I have rushed to get all of this done and up. So uh, you're just going to hear uh, video as opposed to watch video, I guess. Um, I'm a little bit upset that you don't get to enjoy uh, watching this, but I'm really hoping that we do get this Harv guy up for you because it's important that you hear him. Um, let's see. I don't think they can. All right. Wow. Everything is just loading at once. I think this is like this is the worst thing ever. And I noticed that my computer as well, when I got back, my, my security system was offline, obviously. <laughs> um, and my computer system was a bit odd. Look at that. There we go. All right, so we should be good now. You guys can hear me well? Nobody missed anything much except for an amazing song rendition 
of White Rabbit and me trying to battle out to have you guys watch this very old video about John Brennan when uh, the media used to do their job. Uh, that's all you missed. That is all you've missed, really. Now, um, I think I want to start with the with the whistleblowers uh, from these various reporters. Uh, so there's Fox 26 and the CBS anchor. Um, I'm going to try to, you know what, guys? I'm going to try this. And if it does this, I'm going to have to hop on a system. I think it's the, it's the Chinese and the um, Venezuelan connection that's throttling it. And I'll have to jump on another platform. But we're going to try this first. And then do that if that's the case. All right, let's try this. Let's see. Fox came at my throat for standing up against censorship. In my opinion, you failed as a reporter. From the inside, yes, there's a narrative. Yes, it is unspoken. But if you accidentally step outside the narrative, if you don't sense what that narrative is mm -hmm. and go with it, there will be grave consequences for you. It's not just about the viewers. It's about what our CEO reads. It's about what our GM reads. My question is very simple. Why are you doing this? It affects the viewers. That's why I'm doing this. The viewers are being deceived by a carefully crafted narrative in some stories. I have passed on Bitcoin stories. African-American audience of five, it's probably not going to play. That's a choice I'm making. An editorial choice? That seems sort of a racially charged statement to make. I want out of this narrative news telling. I want out of, of this corruption. Are you afraid of doing this? I haven't had a lot of fear about it. I'm, I'm so horrified at what the news business has, has stooped to. What you just heard was our newest insider, Fox 26 reporter Ivory Hecker, blowing the whistle on her own network's bias. Hecker felt compelled to come forward and shine a light on what she says is Fox 26 being, quote, deceptive to viewers. Fox came at my throat for standing up against censorship. Fox Corp is prioritizing corporate interests above the viewer's interests and therefore operating in a deceptive way. I have passed on Bitcoin stories. Audience, it's probably not going to play. That's a choice I'm making, an editorial choice. You need to cease and desist posting about hydroxychloroquine. It's not just about the viewers, it's about what our CEO reads. You need to stand for something or fall for anything. Ivory, what do you do at Fox 26 Houston? I'm a reporter, um, dayside reporter, primarily on the 5 o'clock news, also 6 o'clock news. And why have you chosen to come forward? What's happening? within Fox Corp is an operation of prioritizing corporate interests above the viewer's interests and therefore operating in a deceptive way. Viewers are being deceived about some of the things that are going on. From my experience, my newsroom kind of groups everyone into racial groups. You know, a lot of our meetings are about, well, how does this play to black people? Hecker says Fox 26 suppression of news stories many times was based on their viewer demographics. I have passed on Bitcoin stories by almost every single reporter for our five o'clock audience because that's not our five o'clock audience. So there are lots of reasons. If I know our numbers are tanking from five to six, 
and in one particular segment, a, a, you know, an older woman, whatever, I may say, yeah, the Bitcoin for for African American audience of five, it's probably not going to play. That's a choice I'm making, an editorial choice. What does she mean by that? Research is done to study who who what sort of demographic groups watch each newscast, and it was found that, uh, according to her, that some of our biggest audience at five is poor black people. And she has decided that poor black people don't care about Bitcoin. That seems sort of a racially charged statement to make for on her behalf. She chose to kind of divert to the, to the story of Bitcoin herself. Hecker goes on to explain how she believes Fox 26's biases go beyond just race. It even seeps into their coverage of medicine and health in general. We have some of those examples, including a video clip of, of Dr. Stella Emanuel talking about hydroxychloroquine in July of 2020. You don't need to be afraid. COVID has a cure. You don't need to be afraid. COVID has prevention. If they put everybody on hydroxychloroquine right now, for those with early disease, early disease, and those that want to get prevention, I'm telling you, will stop COVID in its tracks in 30 days. That story went viral July 27th. The next morning at Fox 26, someone tipped me off. This doctor's from Houston. This is our local story. Um, and we also, everyone noticed how it, it was getting censored across social media platforms like we'd never seen before. We were all stunned by that. My boss, Susan, talked about how it did not make sense that they were censoring this. Dart brought up that. Who's Dart? Oh, Dart is Susan's boss, our station president. And Dart on that call, he said, look, it's obvious why this is getting censored. President Trump said that hydroxychloroquine works. He retweeted her. And whatever he does, everyone wants to do the opposite. That's Who what, said that, that? That's what Dart said. So the story aired. We talked about we talked about a recent NIH study where hydroxychloroquine was found to neither be harmful or helpful. And I added that to the story. And Susan the next day said it was a very well-rounded, great story. But after I was done putting that story together, I made a separate social media post about censorship itself. And I said, look, we just witnessed unprecedented censorship across the social media monopoly, her, her being censored. That's an alarming precedent that was just set. So it, this was like a, a, a turning yet. point moment for that, you. That was a turning point for me. This, yeah. Uh, Dr. I mean, that Stella. Was, yeah. What, what became a turning point was how Fox reacted. Fox came at my throat for standing up against censorship. Why do you think they did that? Why do you think they came at you so hard? Here's the thing. From the inside, yes, there's a narrative. Yes, it is unspoken. But if you accidentally step outside the narrative, if you don't sense what that narrative is mm -hmm. and go with it, there will be grave consequences for you. And this story with Dr. Verone is what proves that. <laughs> That's a, you know, that's a great question. And the answer is yes, we have used it. I mean, we know that it's a drug that has been politicized up to the wazoo. Uh, we've used it. We use it with good success. I, I asked that question because I was getting those tips from the viewers. And that was that was a story, by the way, that Susan and Lee sent me there to cover the COVID treatments at that hospital. I just wasn't supposed to ask that question. So to cease and desist posting about hydroxychloroquine. In my opinion, you failed as a reporter. 
to not know more if you were going to post about hydrochloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, that you didn't look up and look at the latest posts, the latest research about it. Read the articles. Read I the have. Studies. There was I... a major study in the New England Journal of Medicine on July 23rd before that doctor, you know, went viral. I mean, you didn't refer to any of that. That study makes him more news. I was aware of that study which is why I posted him What's because he, I referenced it okay. in my story about Dr. Emanuel. She's shutting down a, a news story that's, that's actually happening. And that's just, that's just one of many news stories. Many, uh, many stories have been shut down over the past uh, almost a year. And I have never to this day advocated for that drug. But Fox said, you've got to stop being a bias. This is the opposite of catering to the audience. The audience was craving answers. And then they're seeing that the news is not covering it at all. Does that build trust in the news? No, that alienates the viewers. They are left to just assume the news must be in on some sort of conspiracy because they're not answering our questions on, on what's really going on. When Hecker felt she was being targeted for simply trying to report the news, this motivated her to secretly record her supervisors, Vice President and News Director Susan Schiller, and Assistant News Director Lee Meyer. Everything's going to be under the microscope. You're not posting anything without Susan or I signing off on it. Industry executives who are the people who hire us and keep us employed. That's the part that needs to make a difference to you. It's not just about the viewers. It's about what our CEO reads. It's about what our GM reads. It's not just about the viewers. It's about what our CEO reads. It's about what our GM is general manager. What does that mean to you? That means that corporate values are above the, the viewers' interests. So in journalism school, we are taught your first loyalty is to the citizen. That, that right there is saying, we don't abide by journalism. We abide by corporate values. It appears Hecker wasn't alone. And when our undercover journalists caught up with Hecker's Houston Fox 26 crew, they weren't shy about the bias they also felt existed at the network. Here at Fox 26? Yeah. How come you guys are like the all vaccine all the time channel? We hire producers, which are the ones that write the show, mm -hmm. that are right out of college, about 25 years old. They don't pay them squat. They just regurgitate what they're fed. And so uh, that's how it ends up being that. It's, it's low-hanging fruit. To it's do, not like this top-down. No, no. It, it's it's low-hanging fruit. They're doing vaccines across town. Well, let's go get video of that. And at first, it's like, yeah, that's, it's a big deal. Uh, you know, when the vaccine first comes out, here three months later, like okay, you know, vaccines mm -hmm. available, <laughs> right? And, and they're a lot, and they're just they're like pushing, they're just pushing it so hard, and you don't hear anything about side effects. Yeah, the vaccine seems to be working great for most people. Okay, but the fact that they are choosing to avoid any negative press about about it, they're not going and and looking at viewers' legitimate concerns and really looking looking to get answers. If you want to get vaccinated. That's great. Um, if you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your personal choice. But to, to use use the venue of news to try to um, convince you to do something with your life, mm -hmm. 
that's that was the de the journalism school's definition of propaganda. Yeah. So every commercial now has got COVID. Every other one. So how does that work? Who buys that space? We're in a time business. CDC? Yeah. Yeah. And I think about everybody. Vaccines are a, a potential money maker for Fox. I mean, that's that's some advertising. Mm -hmm. The the vaccines they need to be advertised somewhere. They can be advertised on Fox. Fox gets paid for that. So you've got to, you know, as a viewer, you've got to look at who is who is advertising on this TV station, and you've got to realize that surely this TV station doesn't want to hurt its advertisers. When Hecker's Fox 26 colleagues were asked if Fox 26 would ever adjust news coverage based on its advertisers, even they admit, quote, a lot of stuff can happen, unquote. So could the ad council call you and be like, hey, I want to run all these spots, but I want to make sure your journalists aren't running any anti-vax stories. If that happens, it's above our You won't know about it. What about you? Would you hear about it? Oh, that happened. Oh, I'm so sad to hear it. It goes, it goes, there's some hierarchy in the tree. But does stuff like that ever happen? I looked up the ad council and their some of their biggest donors are the vaccine companies. So another one of their biggest donors is Fox Corp. So ad council would be paying Fox after Fox gave a tax deductible donation to ad council. What's particularly concerning about the ad council posts is they don't come off as it's not blatant that it's an ad. Um, and it's actually paid advertising, so it's a little it's You're a little deceptive. It's not clear that it's an yeah, ad. it's yeah, it's a little deceptive as far as whether it is an ad. You know, the news does need advertisers to to exist, but you always hope that if the news had to cover a story about its advertiser, that it would do it unbiasedly. But there is definitely a conflict of interest. You mentioned about advertisers. Does the news industry need advertisers to exist? They do. That's, that's their primary source of funding. Is that compatible with telling the news? There's always that concern that the corporation might cater too much to advertising or self-censor mm -hmm. to make sure they don't lose any advertisers. Mm -hmm. A reasonable viewer might conclude that a local Fox reporter like Ivory might be doing this just for fame and notoriety. When asked... This is what she had to say. And a lot of people are going to be watching this and speculating, saying things. You'll even have some critics. My question is very simple. Why are you doing this? It affects the viewers. That's why I'm doing this. 
the viewers are being deceived by a carefully crafted narrative in some stories. Okay, in, in some areas they do fantastic journalism. For some reason, some of these stories have an incredible slant. And if you accidentally step outside it, you you they try to internally destroy you. As, as I've witnessed firsthand, that affects the viewers. That does not just affect me. Are you afraid of doing this? I haven't had a lot of fear about it. I'm, I'm so horrified mm -hmm. at what the news business has, has stooped to. At this point, I want out mm -hmm. of, of this, this narrative news telling. I, I want out of, of this corruption. Corruption, that's a strong word. I want out of the corruption. I want to tell true stories without, without fear of whether it, it fits the corporate narrative. The corporate news paradigm is incompatible with journalism. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's very sad. It's very and sad. you're not the only person that feels this way. We have spoken to other people who may or may not do what you're doing, who work for other stations and news operations and news organizations. What is your message to those people? You need to stand for something or fall for anything. And Journalism is so important. If you look at history, it is so important to, to go, after, go after the stories that, that your viewers are craving answers to, to keep that loyalty to the viewers and to the truth. And if you allow yourself to be um, guided through a, a, a corporate narrative, to be used as a tool of, of corporate narrative, corporate news narrative, corporate news propaganda, whatever you want to call it, then you may very well be contributing to the problems that begin to develop uh, in a society that develops a censored press. Ivory Hecker is ready to pursue a career in independent journalism where she can report the news without fear or favor. If you work in media and see corruption, email us at veritastips at protonmail.com. And this is how you create a free and independent media, not by selling t-shirts, not by telling people, hey, pull out your red digital string, but by being brave enough to say the truth, no matter how many feelings it hurts, no matter how it is. And there's very little of that. Obviously, it is prone to corrupt just again. Because again, people are creatures of comfort, creatures of habit, and self-preservation is the most motivating factor one has. Now, um, I wanted to say, uh, this uh, plays into the conversation I want us to have in regards to um, uh, authoritarian, uh, competitive authoritarianism. Uh, it's very important because uh, in order to have such a regime, there's got to be an uneven, a, a very biased playing field in terms of accessing public media, justice, and state resources. I want you to keep that in mind as you listen to the next media whistleblower. This one was from CBS, uh, April Moss. Take a listen to what she had to say. Uh, I am excited to see this web girl come truther. Here we go. Hey, Chuck. So I saw what you did on the air yesterday. Yes. <clears throat> you, you may get terminated for that. Are you aware of that? Yes, I am. All right, so... So you're, you're okay with that then? I understand if 
CBS decides to let me go. I do understand that. Why would you do that? You know, basically, that's the most selfish thing I've ever seen in all in 36 years working there without even a close second. Because you don't give a crap about anybody else, you know, and, and, and like if you get terminated, which you might, and then the burden is going to place on other people. You couldn't care less. It's just all about April Moss. Well, that's not. That's very, very unfortunate. I mean, I. Why is he bitching? What is he telling her? How dare you call the station out? Now people are going to look at us and call us losers for not saying anything. And for him, for 36 years, not saying anything. See, they don't like it when one person from the team tells the rest of the world. Because then the spotlight's on them. You're all losers. You all do a disservice to the people. Only one person had the balls, and she was the weather girl to tell the world what's really going on. To him, it's selfish. To all of us, it's like, no, nah, man, you're a loser. You're not holding up 36 years. The stories your eyes have seen be buried that should have been reported. Chuck Davis, no, you're the selfish one. It's all about your self-preservation. Never about the job you do, which is to deliver the news to the people. I know we've had some talks, and, you know, and all of that, but I didn't know that you were that kind of person. I'm not that kind of person. You Chuck. are April. You are. You're all about April, and that's it. That, here, here, I'm April, and here's my stance. Regardless of the burden, this is going to put on anybody else. Well, I've tried to go through all of the the direct channels that. What do you think? What do you think going on the air and getting fired is going to do? Do you think that's going to change their rules? Well, it's not just CBS, but it's a lot of organizations and corporations across the country are that are that are enforcing unfair, un unfair standards on people. I can't believe you did that. I just can't believe it. I mean, we had again, we had some chats offline, and you know, and some texts, you know, but but to go on the air and, and just blatantly disregard in any protocols, you know, and, and again, place all of this burden on other people. You know, I mean, I'm going to recommend that you get terminated. I'm going to recommend that. I'm not going to stand up for you because that was as blatant as, 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 as anything I've ever seen. Okay, but I've I've gone through all the natural channels with HR. I've sent them documentation stating that this is against federal law. I understand law. that. I saw all that email. So do you think that going on the air and saying something and getting fired is going to change anything? Oh, I mean, what what could you possibly have thought would affect that would happen other than you getting fired? I was hoping that they would understand and realize that they that that enforcing these policies on people that are against federal law is not OK. So you're going to go on there and say that and you think that they're going to say, oh, you know what? She's right. We're going to go ahead and change those now because she said it on the air. You really thought that. I was hoping there would be there would be a change no, because not gonna be. the only change is going to be, you know, on, on our weekend weather person. That's the only change. OK, thank you. OK, wow. Wow. What a loser that guy is. Does that guy have kids? I'd be ashamed to be his kid. I'd be ashamed to be associated with Chuck Davis. Wow. Super wow. Wow. And wow. <laughs> the system's really giving me a lot of crap today. And it's probably my fault for jumping on so rushed and not organized because, uh, I, many of you do know that I've been trying to move while I'm traveling, right? Uh, I'll buy it. It's right down the hall, but I am trying to move as well. So I've got 
bed in another place, desk in another place, gun, <laughs> everything's in another place and split. So I apologize for the rush put together because I, I don't think people, um, um, issues today. It's just been really, really difficult uh, to keep it in check. Uh, for those of you uh, that have uh, listened to both these videos and watched them, this is only the beginning. And people like Chuck Davis, right, are so many. The majority of Americans are like Chuck Davis. I actually noticed um, while I was traveling that a lot of people um, feel that if they take the vaccine, that they're obedient and they deserve prizes. I'll tell you why I say this. Um, so I stayed at like four different hotels over five days. <laughs> and uh, in every single hotel, the sign said those that are vaccinated can choose to wear a mask or not. So I obviously am not wearing a mask. I'll identify as whatever I like. But um, there was a, a couple where the man had vaccinated, but the woman hadn't. And, you know, she took her, she, she walked in there without the mask. And he's like, hey, put your mask on. She was like, why? He's like, because you're not vaccinated. And she goes, so nobody knows that. I'm fine. I'm not sick. And he goes, you don't get the privileges that people that follow the rules do. So put it on. And I was thinking, oh, man. That's what they're pushing now. I see it. First of all, why is that chick with that guy? I would be like, yo, see ya, right? See ya. But on the other hand, it makes you wonder. They're pushing it like, hey, if you're obedient, you get all these freedoms. If you listen, you get all these freedoms. Oh, look, if you just abide by the rules, wear your mask, get all the vaccines will tell you, you can get coffee and travel. This is just how stupid and pretentious they are. It's like when people sit in like, you know, first class or, you know, uh, get the more elite type stuff. So for me, I have a shit ton of you know, high level, like membership things on airlines. Like I'm a member with almost every airline and I've collected and gotten lifetime statuses in many hotels and airlines in my life. So I always look to buy cheap and use my membership clout to get, you know, first class. And you know why? Because I like the bigger seats and I have a big butt. And not only that, I like to sleep rather than sit on top of somebody else. So, but what I notice is, is that the people that are there are so pretentious, like they obey. So they get better privileges. I'll tell you why, you know, how you see all the stewardesses, um, on top of everyone, wear your mask, put it over your nose, put your baby, gag your baby, do this. Right. Um, they do that to, to economy. Okay. They don't do that to first class. And now I wear my mask on the plane. I don't want to get booted. I want to be able to travel. And it's a plane, so I can't say much. And they're like in their own zone. And until someone does something, um, you know, whatever. But I wear my mask. Obviously, I am always constantly pretending to eat or drink. Even if my cup is empty, I'll be pretending to sip. So I don't have to but I follow the rules. So that way I'm not booted off the plane. But what I noticed was yesterday on my flight, 
obviously stewardesses from other airlines and their friends were all jacking up, um, you know, the first class section. None of the paying customers, it was the free jumpers, right? Actually, no, that's that's wrong. The two people in front of us were paying uh, customers. And then the rest of them were all, you know, hopping a ride on the bird. And so anyway, they... Um, they all, when they got served, like their coffee, their orange juice or whatever it was, dude, they all took their masks off and put them in their pocket. None of them were wearing it. And then they pulled the curtain so nobody would see. And it was like, oh, how appalling. And there is that steward that's serving them all those drinks saying, make sure you wear your mask because we're going to enforce it and you can fly and, and you won't be able to fly and we might put you on a no-fly list and you might be, um, you know, uh, getting civil and criminal penalties for not wearing it. So that clown that did it wasn't even wearing his mask. Now, I wanted to take pictures and put it on, but on the other hand, I didn't do it for two reasons. One, I want them to feel comfortable that no one's going to tell on them so they can do it again and again and again. And two, it would be very obvious who took that picture. <laughs> it was just me, Phoebe, and the two paying customers in front so, of us. So uh, the odds of the two people in front of us videotaping and making something viral or slim to none, all they would have to do is Google the other two passengers and that's it, right? So um, I'm telling you this, uh, you know, the flight attendants don't wear the masks. They pretend to. Uh, you know, they wear them just for show and that is how it is. Uh, so I'm seeing this pretentious feel that one, if you're in first class and follow the rules and in black Ubers, you don't need to wear a mask, right? Right. Everybody else has to. And it is Gestapo time if you don't abide. And this again circles back to competitive authoritarian regimes they, they, that is the type of regime that has been ruling the United States for a while. The illusion of democracy is what it gives. Now, that's where I want to take us right now with um, Stephen Levitsky. So this, you're going to find very interesting. See, the, the one thing a lot of people do Many is they tell you to new forms they of authoritarianism. Tell the, they tell you the news, right? They tell you the news um, and they tell you what to listen to. I don't do that. I can report the news. I can give you my opinion and my take, but I want you to learn how to do it yourself because there's going to be a day that I'm not here and there's going to be a day. There's not going to be anyone there to spoon feed you information. There's going to be a day where there is no TV, no internet, right? It's just you. And then you have to rely on yourself to be able to discern information. And obviously, we all know my usual one, which is, hey, in the age of information, ignorance is a choice. But on the other hand is, you're in an overload of information right now. How do you discern what's correct and what's incorrect? And unfortunately, that's down to you. Uh, that's down to your ability to discern things, and that's by trusting your gut. You should always walk in faith, not in sight. What resonates with you as true, no matter how painful it is, no matter how painful it is. Now, take a listen to this. I'm sure this is new for many of you. If I could be uh, one-tenth as compelling, I will have done my job. 
In yesterday's session, many of the speakers referred to new forms of authoritarianism that have emerged in recent years, recent decades. Someone mentioned modern dictatorship, subtle dictatorship, elected autocracies, to quote Alejandro Toledo. Luke and Wei and I just published a book that tries to put a name to this new regime type. As all of you know, the last 30 years saw an unprecedented wave of political change. Dictatorships collapsed throughout Latin America, Africa, Eastern Europe, much of Asia, and now parts of the Middle East. Elections spread across the globe. But not all transitions lead to democracy. That was one of the great myths of the last two decades. In fact, many transitions gave rise and continue to give rise to competitive authoritarianism, regimes in which multi-party elections exist and are meaningful, but systematic government abuse skews the playing field against the opposition. Prominent examples include Mexico under the PRI, Peru under Alberto Fukimori, Serbia under Milosevic, uh, Russia under Yeltsin and Putin, and Venezuela under Hugo Chavez. But dozens of other competitive authoritarian regimes have also emerged in the last couple of decades in countries as diverse as Armenia, Albania, Croatia, Belarus, Cambodia, Ethiopia, Gabon, Cameroon, Georgia, Kenya, Malaysia, Mozambique, Nigeria, Ecuador, Romania, Senegal, Taiwan, Ukraine, Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, to name a few. Now, unlike traditional dictatorships, competitive authoritarian regimes are competitive. Opposition parties exist, they're legal, they're above ground, and they use democratic institutions to contest often vigorously for power. Incumbents really have to sweat it out on election day. Once in a while, they even lose elections. So democratic institutions aren't just a facade. This is not Egypt under Mubarak. But what distinguishes competitive authoritarianism from democracy is that competition is unfair. Civil liberties are often violated. Journalists and opposition activists are harassed. They're arrested. They're exiled. They're occasionally killed. And elections are marred by intimidation, by media bias, and occasionally by fraud. And crucially, crucially, the political playing field is uneven. Incumbents massively abuse state resources, raiding the public treasury, and systematically deploying state institutions as weapons against the opposition. So soldiers, police, bureaucrats work actively for the governing party. Intelligence agencies spy on the opposition. Tax authorities investigate and punish, often systematically, businesses that finance the opposition. And the courts are used to convict newspaper editors and journalists of libel. As a result, opposition forces are denied access to two absolutely essential things, finance and the media. Incumbents outspend their opponents by 20, 30, even 50 to 1. And pro-government forces control most, if not all, major broadcast media. There may be independent newspapers and magazines, but what really counts is radio and television. And those things, for the most part, are in the hands of pro-government allies. So this is not just ordinary, run-of-the-mill incumbent advantage. It's an advantage that's so one-sided and so excessive that it seriously undermines the opposition's ability to compete. As Mexican analyst Jorge Castaneda put it, it's like a soccer match where the goalposts are of different lengths and different heights and where one team has 11 players plus the referee and the other team has a mere six or seven players. Now, the rise of competitive authoritarianism is very much a post-Cold War phenomenon. The collapse of the Soviet Union, the rising power of the West in the 1990s, an unprecedented Western democracy promotion raised the cost of outright dictatorship and created very strong incentives 
for developing countries to adopt formal democratic institutions, particularly elections. Suddenly in the 1990s and 2000s, it became a lot harder to sustain a full-scale autocracy. You could do it if you were China, you could do it if you were Saudi Arabia, but if you were a poor peripheral country like Malawi, like Haiti, Albania, Cambodia, the cost of outright dictatorship grew very, very high. But at the same time, as all of you know, there were real limits to this international democratizing pressure. International community insisted that governments tolerate opposition, that they hold elections, but beyond that, the level of external scrutiny was pretty low. So governments learned pretty quickly that they could get away with quite a bit of abuse. They couldn't ban the opposition in the private media, but they could still bully them and they could still buy them off. They can cancel elections, but they could still skew the playing field and in many cases, steal a few votes here and there. So the international bar was raised after 1990, but it was raised to the level of elections, not to the level of democracy. And what that meant was that unless there was a strong domestic push from democracy, rooted in a robust civil society, the collapse of dictatorship very often gave rise not to democracy, but to competitive authoritarianism. This was particularly true in the former Soviet Union and in Africa, where civil societies were especially weak. Competitive authoritarian regimes proliferated in the post-Cold War era. When Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union in 1985, there were seven or eight of them in the world. A decade later, mid-1990s, there were nearly 40. Among developing countries today, there are about as many competitive authoritarian regimes as there are democracies. Now, compared to other forms of, of authoritarianism, competitive authoritarianism is fairly benign. Malawi is much freer today than it was under Banda. Fujimori's Peru pales next to Pinochet's Chile, and Putin's Russia is still hardly the Soviet Union. But the problem with competitive authoritarianism is that it slips under international radar screens. Because there are regular multi-party elections, because there are fewer massive human rights violations, competitive authoritarian regimes rarely face heavy international scrutiny. In fact, the international community generally treated countries like Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania as new democracies in the 1990s. But they were not new democracies. They were never new democracies. And the proof lies in the fact that opposition forces almost never won elections. Take Southern Africa, for example. All right. So what is this telling you right now? So this guy was out talking about this in 2007. Are you paying attention now? Can you see how this is the United States of America? How everything this Harvard professor put together was exactly what our nation is today. This is exactly what was, what is our nation today? In fact, uh, you know, when it comes to competitive authoritarian regimes, elections, and I quote, he says, are bitterly fought. Although the electoral process is uh, characterized by large-scale abuses of state po power, biased media coverage, often violent, harassment of opposition candidates and activists, and an overall lack of transparency, elections are regularly held competitive in major opposition parties and candidates that usually participate, and generally free of massive fraud on a basis of illusion. So the thing about com competitive authoritarian regimes is, is that 
they make it look like there's two big opposing sides, right? And they hold elections. And the mainstream media, the, the people, the activists, there will be violence. They will be talking a ton of smack on the side that is considered opposition. Imagine when real opposition steps in like President Trump, right? <clears throat> the elections are usually done in the same way. Uh, they compete. It's both the same side. But when the new side comes up, an actual op opposing side, the side of the people, that's where it changes. This is where you see these, the fixed elections, the election fraud. That is where you see it. And that is what happens. And this guy clearly puts it out, pointing out to Africa, <laughs> which was the testing proving ground for everything they had planned for us. Nearly 20 years ago, how many elections have incumbents lost in those four countries? The answer is none. Since 1994, incumbents are undefeated in all four countries, winning 14 consecutive presidential elections. Throw in Botswana, another mythical democracy, and you have 18 out of 18 presidential elections in the last 20 years. In democracies, incumbents don't win 18 out of 18 elections. But the deeper problem with giving competitive authoritarian regimes a free pass is that many of them eventually reconsolidate into full-scale authoritarianism. In the mid-1990s, Belarus and Russia were relatively benign competitive authoritarian regimes. Now, today, both of them are much closer to full-scale dictatorship. 15 or 20 years ago, Cambodia, Mozambique, Cameroon were fairly competitive regimes. Today, ruling parties have reestablished hegemony. Now, there are basically three paths out of competitive authoritarianism. In terms of democracy, the optimal path is that in which the regime is defeated by a strong domestic opposition, either via elections, like in Ghana, like in Taiwan, like in Mexico, or via sustained protest, like in Serbia. Or via sustained protests like in Serbia. Since our elections are fixed, the machines are fixed, all of them are fixed, why would anyone sit there and talk about their run for office? How are you going to run for office when everything is fixed? How are you going to run for office when the machines are not counting the ballots correctly? How are you going to run for office? If you're talking about running for office and you're not dealing with the machines, yeah, you're not really clued into what's really happening. See, protests, define, define protests. Is it burning bridges, setting fires, hmm? busting down faces, kicking down doors, harassing the elderly? No, it's not. It's dropping signage everywhere in protests. It's writing letters. It's taking the seats locally away from those that, that have usurped them anyway. <laughs> locally, 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 locally. Because when you're running for uh, to represent me on a federal level, as a congressman or as a senator or as a governor, an attorney general or a secretary of state, your ass better be all over this audit. Why isn't every state already starting audits? I said every single one of them should be audited, and every single one of them will. Every single state had fraud. Every single one. There's not one that didn't. Some of them 
didn't really care about President Trump. They're like, yeah, I give it to him. They're going to steal it somewhere else. But they fixed all your local elections. You think all your judges that have been elected have been elected correctly or have they been selected by the powers that be? Maybe the governors that need the judges on their side or the secretary of states or the attorney generals. I need you to take a strong think about it. Because if you think elections are only rigged for the House, Senate, and presidency, you really have no idea what's going on. So protest is the other way out of this type of regime. But we must redefine protest because they've stolen that definition from us too. Transitions that are driven by a robust opposition usually do result in democracy. Unfortunately, though, that sort of transition is fairly uncommon because in today's competitive authoritarian regimes, civic opposition forces are pretty weak. Unfortunately, there are not many Polands or South Africa's left. Uh, they, uh, the bases for robust opposition movements in countries like Cambodia, Russia, Tanzania are weak, are pretty non-existent. A more common source of change in competitive authoritarian regimes is collapse from within. Most competitive authoritarian regimes are pretty weak. Ruling parties are weak. The state's coercive apparatus is weak. And when states and ruling parties are weak, regimes are often pretty vulnerable to crisis. Faced with a viable opposition candidate, faced with a wave of protest in the capital, things very quickly unravel. The ruling party splits, top government officials defect to the opposition, the army and police refuse to crack down on protest, the president is forced to flee. We saw this in Albania, we saw it in Haiti, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, Madagascar, Ukraine, among other countries. These transitions, driven by weakness, often look pretty spectacular. They may even get labeled democratic revolutions, but they're not revolutions, and they often do not bring democracy. They're what we call, what Luke and Wei and I call, rotten door transitions, transitions in which protesters essentially knock down a rotten door in a context of a weak state, weak political parties, and a weak civil society. Those are not conditions under which democracy is likely to take hold. In fact, rotten door transitions often fail to bring about much institutional change at all, and they often bring to power politicians who only very recently defected from the old regime. So you get successor governments made up of the old elite playing by many of the old rules of the game. And more often than not, the result of that is another round of competitive authoritarianism. We saw that in Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, Malawi, Zambia, Madagascar, and other places. A third way out of competitive authoritarianism is through strong external pressure. In some cases, particularly in Eastern Europe, close international monitoring and effective use of conditionality raise the cost of fraud and abuse so much that autocrats ultimately opted to seize power, or to cede power, excuse me, rather than crack down in the face of a strong opposition challenge. We saw that in Croatia, in Romania, in Slovakia, Albania, Guyana, Dominican Republic, and Nicaragua in 1990. What these cases have in common is extensive economic, political, technocratic communication and civil society ties to Europe or the United States. This is what Luke and Wei and I call international linkage. Where linkage is extensive, the cost of abuse is higher because a greater number of domestic, political, and economic actors have a stake in maintaining their country's international standing. It is in places like Nicaragua, Dominican Republic, Croatia, Slovakia, Romania, where politicians, technocrats, business people, and even voters believe they have a lot to lose from international isolation. It's there that we're, where external democratizing pressure 
has the greatest impact. In fact, among the 11 high linkage cases that we examine in our book, not a single competitive authoritarian regime survived the post-Cold War period. All of them died. By contrast, in Africa, the former Soviet Union, and in much of Asia, where ties to the West are weaker or are more uneven, the impact of external pressure is much weaker and competitive authoritarianism has been much more robust. Now that poses, I think, a dilemma for international human rights and democracy promoters. Democracy promotion appears to work best where linkage to the West is extensive. And that suggests, at least to me, that long-term policies of building ties, like the EU did in Eastern Europe, have some real value. But the international response to authoritarianism is usually to isolate, to suspend assistance, to exclude from international organizations, to apply sanctions, Zimbabwe, Burma, Iran. These policies over the long haul reduce linkage, which may ultimately limit the effectiveness of external pressure. The regimes that exist today in Mozambique, in Georgia, in Nigeria, in Malaysia are much, much preferable to the military or single party dictatorships that were so widespread during the Cold War era. But we shouldn't be satisfied with electoral regimes in which the ruling party almost never loses. Real democracy requires a level playing field. And dealing with an uneven playing field is a major new challenge for democracy promoters across the world. And I think it's going to be a big issue in the coming years in the Middle East. The Middle East, as all of you know, is the last major bastion of outright dictatorship in the world. All of us hope that these dictatorships, when they fall, will be replaced by democracies. But I think it's much more likely that we'll see the emergence of a variety of competitive authoritarian regimes in the region. I'll stop there. So what did you guys think about that Harvard guy? That was really good, right? He's telling you exactly where we are in the United States of America right now. This is exactly it. There's no if, ands, or buts. This is it. Do you know that in full-scale competitive authoritarian regimes, legislatures either uh, don't exist at all or they're controlled by the ruling party? Um, and they conflict within each other in the legislature and the executive branch and the legislature usually are on point. So when the legislature and the executive branch see eye to eye and they rule, it's over. And this is exactly where we're at. Competitive authoritarian regimes, they tend to be, their legislatures tend to be really weak. They're weak sauce. They don't do anything. And basically the only thing they do is focus on opposition activity. Have you seen that? Because this is textbook, textbook. Are you not seeing that with our legislators right now in Congress? Have you not been seeing that for the years to come? Competitive authoritarianism. This is the type of regime the United States exists under. This is the way it is. Now, as I said, in competitive authoritarian regimes, they control everything, right? The electoral arena, which they own right? Which they owe. They eliminate any competition for elections straight off the bat. Then 
They take over the legislative arena. These are bullet points from an old lecture of his from like 2011, right? And then the third one is judicial arena. Now tell me, right, how this regime now within the United States does not own the judicial arena. Governments of competitive authoritarian regimes, they attempt to subordinate the judiciary. It will impeach them if they go against, or they will make them subdue via bribery, extortion, or other mechanisms of co-optization. Yes. Have we not seen that here? Of course we have. Again, an authoritarian, a, comp a competitive authoritarian regime also needs the media. The media is the center point. It is the mouth of the competitive authoritarian regime. The media is entirely state-owned. And one would say, Tori, the media is not owned by the United States of America. It's owned by corporations. Oh, well then, I want you again to think. Who is it that rules you? Who has this competitive authoritarianism regime? Who owns that regime? Ah, I see. It's the corporations. Your bosses are the corporation. Facebook, Twitter, I told you years ago, they're owned by DARPA. Who owns DARPA? Who runs DARPA? Who runs the CIA? Who runs your DOJ? Who runs your FBI? Who runs your, uh, you know, Secretary of Treasury, right? Your Office of Management and Budget, your Department of Agriculture, your Department of Interior, your Department of State. Who runs that? Tell me who runs that. Because if you're going to say that we do, you're wrong. It's the corporations. It's the damn corporations. I mean, right now we've got emails with Fauci, right? That supposedly came out on this FOIA, right? But they redact the ones from Facebook. But they didn't redact other ones. They redacted the ones from Facebook. I see. How many times have I said Facebook is your government? Twitter is your government. Google is your government. Huh. I wrote an article about Eric Schneiderman missing. Uh, uh, <laughs> he ran the Clinton Foundation. And in that article, I buried information for everyone to see how Google funded crowd strike in Ukraine. Again, who's your, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? No, it's not the government. It's the corporations. The corporations are the fourth unelected branch of government. The corporations are the ones that you have voluntarily provided all your information based on the fact that they provide you consumer goods. And for all these free things, nothing's free. When something's free, you're the product of rewards. And, oh, look, you get this. Oh, look, you get that right? They own you. You are their asset and they cannot survive without you because you are there to consume, but in turn, they consume you. They are your daddy. The corporations, the fourth unelected branch of government are the corporation who funds the advertising, the corporations, who buys the billboards, the corporations, who builds the houses, the corporation, who feeds you corporations, who clothes you corporations, who educates you corporations, who gives you entertainment, the corporations. So who's in charge? The damn fucking corporations. That's who's in charge. 
And the thing is, you've done that voluntarily. And they look like giants, of course, because you're on your knees. Now, while many may say, well, we're going to boycott, stop. How, how long are you going to boycott? You're not going to buy aspirin, not going to buy food, not going to buy a car, not going to buy, you know, a phone, not going to get on the internet. Not, nope, nope, uh, I'm not. How long will that be for? And how can you get everyone on board to boycott the shit out of everything? You can't. So what you need to do is take the reins of the narrative. See, it was quite fitting that the operation was called Operation Reigns back then because that was basically it, them taking the reins of the people's voice. Well, time to take it back. Who says you can't rein this in? But we need Google. Mm, not anymore. We need this. Mm, not really. But we need that. Mm, not really. But we need this. Mm, not really. See, we can use everything. It's not like they're going to stab themselves in the foot. See, the thing about greed is, is that greed can't see that there's an abundance for almost everyone. Greed. Greed, greed. See, if you find a problem in society and you answer that problem, you make a shit ton of money because you solve a problem. Now, think of all these corporations, Walmart, Target, Starbucks, Damn, Edelman, you've been fucking busy. Let's keep going. Uh, Nike, Adidas, Amazon. I want you to think, Sony, right, Microsoft. What answers to problems did they provide that made them so successful? Now, if you stand back and look at it from the moon, if you reflect on what you see, you'll see that the only one that actually can survive all of this is Amazon. What? Yes. Amazon has tapped into something the other companies has not. They have not. Walmart hasn't. Target hasn't. They're trying to play catch up, but they haven't. Amazon, the only reason that they will survive all of this is because they answered one really important problem that society had. And that's the need for an instant fix. Amazon can give you news, entertainment, music, goods, books, you name it, they have it. And it's not during this control of virus situation where there was no real virus. The virus was there just for the vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When it started, it knew exactly what it was doing. It created agreements with UPS, FedEx, and USPS so good that now without having Amazon as part of their team, Amazon's going to dominate delivery products now. That's their next step. Monopoly? Yes but they're going to become a public utility. They're trying to create themselves to be a platform. If you can't see it, then you're not looking the right way. It's not about them providing products. It's the instantaneous. It's the conveying of products, the consumer goods, either that be digital, virtual, tangible. They want to be the tangible linchpin to cyberspace for you. 
That's why they smile. Now you'll see that coming soon. Why Amazon is so successful and why all the other companies will fail and why all the other companies have to use Amazon. How many of you shop on Amazon and it's really coming from Walmart? How many of you shop on Amazon, but it's coming from Target? How many of you shop on Amazon, but it's coming from Nike and Adidas, right? And, you know, big MGM studios and music companies, right? And, and, and clothing stores and luxury and non-luxury, right? Home goods, all that stuff. They all have to use Amazon. They all go through Amazon. So... When people sit back and they talk, Microsoft, Nike, Target, Starbucks, stop. They have a master too. The only way they can access your house is through Amazon. How many of you have driven on the road lately? You see UPS trucks or do you see a lot of smiling Amazon? See, Amazon's going to be the linchpin, again, like I said, between cyberspace and tangible. That is their ultimate goal. Now, while that is a crazy enemy, well, the minute it becomes a utility, what year is it now? Mm, 2045, 2046, it becomes a utility. It's going to be that crossover between cyber and tangible. So the fact of the matter, give me a second, please. Uh, this is killing me. Sorry, I got a sunburn on my head. I kid you not. <laughs> and the headset was killing me. So 2046, uh, when the um, Amazon, when Amazon becomes a public utility, you know, Amazon is also a storage cloud facility. Uh, it actually owns portions of IBM. Uh, you'll realize how um, not your enemy yet it is. Now, this is why it's important that you learn to identify and learn how to put brakes on because none of you could see what Facebook was turning into. None of you could see what Twitter was turning into. None of you could see what Starbucks was turning into. You know, whenever I go through advertisements that are targeting me, I only have one phone that has the Facebook app on it. One, right. That I, that I know everybody and their mother has cloned a million times. So they see what I do. Um, the advertisement, when they come through, when I see the LGBT, you know, rainbow, you know, profile because it's, you know, cultural appropriation or whatever, being so freaking woke, I, um, I turn it off. I block it. Because the one thing that you won't see is a lot of this appropriation. Uh, I, they get a lot of shit and I'm not, and I'm not thumping them. I'm telling you factually where they're at. They're in charge of everything right now. And the one thing Amazon didn't do is mess with your elections. Everybody else did though, right? Amazon has Amazon storage clouds, but you have to remember the AWS system, cloud system is also based on another system, right? It's not theirs. So Bezos has already left Amazon. That's the first step. It's a 20-year, 20-somewhat-year 20, 20 countdown uh, to where uh, legislation will be happening, okay? And I want you to see it as a reflection of how the things go. The corporations are at war here, like I've told you a couple of years ago. You're the spectator, and they're titans right now fighting over you. And not only are they fighting over you, and you're getting 
you're the, 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 you know, innocent casualty. You're also watching them fight over you and you don't even know they're fighting over you. That's what's weirder. So what you have to see is exactly how the structure is within the corporations to understand them. Because once you understand the structure and the hierarchy within large corporations and the battle for real estate in that corporation ladder, you'll be able to quickly realize how this fourth unelected, uh, unelected branch of government came to power, how it settled in, how it uh, pretty much integrated with your life in all aspects, and how easily it did it. Competitive authoritarianism. If I hear anyone say that we have a democratic republic right now, you're wrong. If I hear anyone say we live in a democratic nation, you're wrong. Democrat, socialist, wrong. Communism, wrong. Socialism, wrong. Authoritarianism, wrong. It's competitive authoritarianism. It gives you the illusion of a democracy when there isn't one. That is by definition what it is. And you have to see who stays within the conversation and who doesn't. Who dominates the space and who doesn't? See, these corporations have lost it completely right now. They have completely lost it. But they will own your children and their children to come. You will not see that ownership. You will not see that ownership. Those in the future will. And that's if they succeed. And right now, the problem is, is that people are too busy looking down rather than looking up. While there's tons of conversations about democracy and what the rules should be, if you actually read the Constitution, you would see that the rules have been set and none of them have been adhered to. How many of you have gone to a hearing, either that be in a court setting, your city setting, right, where they tell you, you need to be nicer to me. I'm not I'm not going to listen. I don't have to. And it's like, well, actually, fuck you. Go read the Constitution. In the Constitution, it says that free speech will not be nice, politically correct, or make you fucking comfortable and kiss your ass. It'll be frank. It'll be brutal. And it'll be honest. So next time any person tells you, you need to be nice. I don't have to put up with it. That's where you tell them you work for me, bitch. I pay your wages with my taxes. Constitution says you're going to listen to me whether you like it or not. And that is exactly how it is. See, they give you the perception that you are wrong for being aggressive, blunt, straightforward, and not being very nice to them. This is where everyone should start not giving any fucks. Because if all of you gave zero fucks in your life, right, we would not be in this situation. Everyone cares about what the person next to them has to say. Everyone cares about what this person will see and say. Everyone cares about how they look, how they walk, how they talk. If you gave zero fucks and looked out to be just a good person all around, that does not mean kissing people's ass. That doesn't mean making baby voices when you want to be nice, right? Stop. I'm sorry. There's a story behind that. I'm still thinking about it. I'm sorry. You know, uh, that's not how it goes. 
zero fucks when it comes to your life. That's how it should be. You should be looking after yourself, your health, your family, your home without imposing shit on others. Like that Chuck Davis from CBS telling her, how dare you? Like after 36 years, you're just going to go ahead and do that. And you don't care about us. Ah, no, she gives zero fucks for you because you know why? Cause you don't give any fucks about anybody else either. She gives zero fucks for you because she has no fucks to give you. I'm saying that straight, Mr. Chuck Davis. Everybody needs to go to Chuck Davis and tell him how they feel. Hey, Chuck Davis, you suck. You've been there 36 years. You're saying what she did isn't going to change anything. It fucking is. Your kid's not going to look at you the same. Your neighbor's not going to see you the same. They're going to be like, what a clap out you are, man. That little young lady that only told the weather has bigger balls than you do. Bigger balls than you do, right? That's the way it is. Zero fucks. Now, why am I saying this? Well, you're going to have to start doing it really quickly because right now it's all going to be about feelings and being nice and taking care of others. I, I, my child in, in sense, you know, she's been in public school. She feels like that too. I tell people nice mask. Is it necessary outside and is it necessary when they're in the car? I'll shout nice mask. Or I'll do the L sign on my forehead, mask loser. You know, I will do that constantly just to make them feel like shit. So they can see that they're abiding by rules because they're twats, not because they're scared, not because they want to, but because, <laughs> because they think they're better by bowing down. So stop bowing down, stop kneeling, get off your knees, stand up. You are in charge of everything. People work for you. Your voice matters more than theirs. I don't care what chair they sit on. You probably paid for it. The justice, the legislator, the senator, the governor, the mayor, the city commissioner, all of them are sitting on shit you paid for. So time to stand up and tell them, hey, if you don't like to hear what I have to say and you're telling me that I have to be really, really nice, well, then you don't deserve that seat because you took an oath to the Constitution, right? Or oath, right? You got in. I'm paying for that chair and you're telling me that I should violate the Constitution because you feel uncomfortable. Now, this is stemming back from a conversation this morning that I kind of had. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it yet don't want to talk about it yet, but this is how it works. An illusion of democracy, an illusion of political correctness, an illusion of order, an illusion. It's just an illusion. Everything is an illusion. They are duping every single one of you with illusionary traits, illusions, all the movie. They're showing you what they want to show you. But remember, it was in March when I was heading off to those ball games. It was in March that I said, well, you know, we're all just going to be walking around in these games and making our statements heard. Flying aerial signs, billboards. Do you see it now? Do you see it now? Now, the problem that we have with this competitive authoritarian regime, and I've said this before, 
is not the legislative branch and not the media. I mean, the media help, helps them a lot. They're the platform where they push these ideologies. You hear them saying it like Stetler, literally asking for people to get canceled. I have had every major publication flat out lie, lie, flat out lie. None of them have read my case talking shit about me. Flat out lie. Going after me because, hey, she's like the 75th most popular on the planet show that's English speaking. This is a problem. We need to deplatform her. Stellar says we need to remove these people. Then you have the people that think they're your voice or pretend to be your voice or are doing it because they're getting paid pretty good to be your voice, upset that they're not even on bigger platforms, right? So it's a shit show out there of canceling left, right, left, right. You know what we just need to do is cancel the bullshit. Give zero. Why, why is, why are any of them on TV? Like whoever thought that Brian Stetler, when he went for an interview, yeah, dude, you totally look like news material. Fuck no, 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 no. That's like casting Cruella DeVille, you know, to be the lady that tells you about PETA situations, you know, uh, on, on the news. That's a, that's a bad hire, bad casting. Anderson Cooper. No, Don Lamont. So unlikable. Rachel Maddow. Yeah. 10 years ago. Yes. She looked like she fit the part. Dan rather. No, you look like you belong on somebody's under someone's desk, right? These are the things that you have to think about. How did they cast for all of these? It's funny how they all look like they play a certain role, right? Brian Stetler is that sleazy, disgusting news guy that nobody wants to watch. Don Lamont hates white people, kind of like Jesse Smollett, right? But his his man is white, and Jesse Smollett's dad is a five foot four Russian, white Russian. Just saying, you know, these are the types of people that they've put up there to be your representatives. And even look at the weather girls, no offense, right? And the other reporters from cities, they all look like cookie cutters. It's like they came out of a factory, no offense, right? They do. They cast them. Again, it's a casting call. It's not about, uh, you know, truthfulness. It's not about likability factors. Like, you know, so check this out. I'm, I'm at the hotel. Um, in the evening. And I'm like, I'm going to lay down at the pool and just take five. I, I was there maybe for like two hours. Um, and I was like, I'm going to take five and then I'm going to take a shower and I'm going to go to bed because I had an early rise because I had a trial the next day. So I'm sitting there on a lawn chair, <laughs> catching some rays. And next to me is this, you know, gay couple um, they were shrieking and talking of how excited they were that Kamala Harris is going to be president. They were so excited. Kamala Harris is going to be president. Right. And they were almost shrieking. And these are like guys that are in their sixties. Okay. And super burnt to a crisp, you know, like the something about Mary type burnt to a crisp. Right. And, um, I'm, I'm just laying next to them. And they were like, you know, I talked to, to Phoebe. She was like, I want to go to the sand. I'm like, yeah. So I don't want to go. You can go and come back here and get me. Cause I really need to. 
I can't do anything. You know, the whole bitching part, right? <laughs> Teenagers do. And it's like, I got to work. And um, so the guys are next to me and they heard this, you know, discussion between me and Phoebe where I was like, I still have to work. You know, I've got to get up early. I don't want, you know, you doing this, this, this. And so the guys just turn around and they just look at me and they're like, oh my gosh, where are you from? And I obviously was not in the mood for a conversation. I was pissed because I had come down so many floors and I had no lighter to smoke a cigarette. I wanted to sit in the sun just for a second. I wanted to have, you know, my nice cold water in the sun and just chill for a second and dip in the water. And here come the guys that were just shrieking about Kamala Harris becoming president next to me asking me where I'm from. And all I did was lower my glasses and say, Trump won. And they disappeared. Guys, they totally disappeared. All I said was Trump won. Mm -hmm. And then I lifted my glasses up and continued rummaging through my bottomless pit of a handbag for a lighter. And they ran. They literally ran. They got up smoked out of there, leaving their cocktails behind and everything. I was like, dang, was this something I said? <laughs> but why do I say that? This is the mentality of many, many people out there. You'll be very surprised. Very surprised. I was actually very surprised that they were like that. I was surprised that at Miami International Airport, I come out to smoke a cigarette and I've got a guy sitting in a truck that doesn't speak English and wearing a mask that had nothing to do with the airport, nothing to do with policing. He was sitting in a stupid freaking moving van, right? With his mask and doesn't speak English. And he's going to sit there and tell me, don't smoke over there. You need to go somewhere else. There's no smoking. I'm like, and this is me. Like I'm a hundred feet away from this dude. And I'm like, excuse me, are you talking to me? I was like, I'm sorry. I can't hear you with your mask, let alone, can you smell? What are you getting paid to tell people not to smoke here? This is the place in society, right? Where people are finding their spot. I was really glad to see that a bunch of dudes <laughs> were laughing. <laughs> they were like further down waiting for their cab or Uber, whatever it was. And they just died laughing. They're like, man, shut up. Wear your mask. They were telling the guy. I didn't say anything. I just it's like the guy's wearing a mask in a truck, hundred feet away from me, and he's bitching at me for not being in the smoking section. Oh, well, well, by the way, while I'm standing next to a Miami Dade cop, like, what? No, and the guy didn't speak English either. A lick of English. Like his English was so broken, right? It was so, I'm not going to say that was a bad joke. It was just really broken English, super broken English. People that cross the border that are below the age of five have better English, very bad English. Anyway, so he was telling me, meaning what? Submission oppression is what sets people in line. If they feel oppressed, they will submit. So, Hence the example of the two gay men, you know, that are in their 60s, super burnt from L.A., apparently, whatever. You know, your typical, I feel oppressed, right? They love Kamala Harris, right? Oh, actually, there was an argument made by someone on the telephone that was like, yo, she's like 
totally in bed with the girl. So let the girl have a little bit of extra money. We love her. And it's like, oh, so let her commit a few crimes. It's okay for Kamala because, yeah, not Trump. So oppress people, like that person that doesn't speak a lick of English, right? The illegal migrants, right? Illegal migrants, right? They will all fall in line, take the vaccine, wear the mask, enforce the rules, become your Karens. Why? Because they feel oppressed and they feel embraced by your oppressors. Um, and that's where I wanted you to see how this ties in. When you see them dividing us through little categories like transsexuals, like what the fuck Nickelodeon drag queens talking about colors? Are you kidding? Oh, and fun fact, the attorney general that's all up my behind, his cousin was one of Jeffrey Epstein's biggest funders, founder of Oxygen and fucking Nickelodeon, just so you know who he is, for those of you that haven't come across that. But anyway, so they make these little pockets of, you know, you're oppressed, you're oppressed, you're oppressed, you're oppressed. So because you're so oppressed, they're giving you all this protection and they're embracing you. So you feel the need to be submissive to them. Bend down, bend the knee, wear the mask, take the vax, be the Karen, tell on people, do it like this. And then it's like those BLM rallies where it's really hard to find the black person in there. It's all about black lives matter, but no black people, right? That those people as well feel oppressed because they have no job. They have no direction. They have no sense of gender. Like many of them, like, I don't know. I think I'm like asexual. <laughs> I may be cis trans, turn around, touch your toes, jump sexual. So they're confused. They have no direction in life. And the only direction they have is structure. So they become pseudo institutionalized. These people are dangerous because they feel that they don't belong because they really believe that they are oppressed, oppressed, right? Because like, from what I heard, one of the guys was from like some, uh, you know, doohickey gut and gun tooting town in uh, city in, um, like close to Gainesville of Florida, it means that, you know, he ran away and went to California because he couldn't be gay there or something, right? When he was younger, I get it. So he feels oppressed, chased out of his own, you know, space or whatever. This is how they feel. And this is why they are easily recruited into these movements to burn shit down, right? To light you up, to tell on you and to put you in a box. This is the perfect soldier for them because their loyalty will be a hundred percent because they make them feel like they belong. And so many people right now are disoriented in life in general, that they are very dangerous and they come in from many age groups from zero to a hundred. There are grannies. Okay. Grannies. You would think like, damn, as you get older, you're supposed to get wise. What happened with you? Right. What happened with you? What, what happened with you? Were you like, you know, not present in your life? Like, how did they become so nuts? Nuts. Because I saw a lot of grannies being all politically correct too. Reasons? Many. So for you to understand where we're going this week in the news... And what is to come, we should be focusing on the election fraud, 
on the audits that are being pushed around the nation, on the fact that you have people running for office and you should ask them, how are you going to run for office, dude, if we're still using the same fucking machines? I was just a problem, Michigan. No, all of them have a problem. These are questions we should be asking. And like I said, hmm, Ohio came first, didn't it? Mm -hmm. So I am so jelly that you guys are going on Saturday because I will be out of state that weekend. Um, but President Trump is coming to my state first, right? Yep, that's what's up. And I know you guys are going to make him proud for coming. I know you guys are going to show him that you still have faith in the outsider, right? Because it's the outsiders that do make a difference. It's the people that don't worry about going against the grain. Imagine if salmon swam with the stream rather than upstream. It wouldn't taste so good, would it? It's all about to go down. And like I said, you must watch Ohio because a lot of things are going to be coming out here. First one to put Biden on notice in January, right? Boom, didn't we? We got that done, didn't we? Hmm? First rally, too. And what's the next first? That's to come. Sometimes you don't tell things because it's not the right thing to do. Now, I wanted to play an audio clip. I don't know if you guys heard it. Hold on. Hold on. I'm trying to get the... Why do, why did, see, this is what happens when things close. It was that interview that he had yesterday, you know, where he said he didn't concede. I mean, we've said that already, but that was awesome. I'm still looking for it. Stashed it somewhere, but it's obviously not being my friend right now because, you know, that's the way things go. Nope. Don't want to, don't want to, let's see. Let's see, where is it? Files. You know what it's like to work with portable drives and have to take them everywhere you go? It's so bad. It's so bad. It's so bad. I'm trying to see the... Um, yeah, obviously not going to turn up because I'm like swapping drives here like crazy. But I do have a portion of it with David Brody. Take a listen to this part. No, I never admitted defeat. We have a lot of things happening right now. I think that that was an election that was, I don't think, all you have to do is read the newspapers and see what's coming out now. No, I never, the word is concede. I have not conceded. No, he has not conceded. And anyone, anyone saying different is, um, is just losing it completely. Let's see where we can find it. Gosh darn it. This week, our Brody file. Wait, before we listen. Okay, while I'm looking for this, I need you guys to listen to this. This is before President Trump was elected, okay? On the golf course with Donald Trump. How in the world did that happen? One-on-one -on -one with a GOP presidential frontrunner who's going biblical. But the Bible is special. The Bible, the more you see it, the more you read it the more incredible it is. And he's talking about God. Who is God to you? I'd say God is the ultimate. He's been a hit with evangelicals so far, but they have a concern. 
They want you to tone down the insults a little bit. They think that they can get there to vote for you if you could tone it down a little. Do, do you see that criticism at all? I do, and I can understand it 100%. Rolling along with Donald Trump in the golf cart on the 18th hole and one-on-one. -on -one. This is going to be one terrific show. The best. We're huge with the evangelicals. The Brody File on Across America with Donald Trump next. And welcome, everybody, to our special show on Donald Trump. Look, he is the GOP frontrunner for president. Now, for some, that may give you some serious heartburn. Oh, wow. For others, it's cause for celebration. But whatever the case, here is Trump's message for you. Deal with it. And that is indeed what we will do for the next 30 minutes, because we're going to take a closer look at the real Donald Trump. You know, that's the name of his Twitter handle. And as the billionaire seeks the GOP nomination, voters are going to get a better handle on who the real Donald Trump is. So, so far, at least we know this. He's strong, brash, bombastic, politically incorrect, has a healthy ego, and has taken the phrase politics as usual and thrown it out the window. We also know that voters will eventually want more substance from him. So is he up for the task? Well, he's going to need to answer that over time. In the meantime, the Brody file will do what we do best, faith and politics. We spent some time with Trump on his beautiful golf course in Southern California. Now, I'm sure he would describe it as huge, terrific, the best. So in the next half hour, you're going to hear Trump talk about the Bible, God, forgiveness, communion, the evangelical vote, the Supreme Court, gay marriage, his aggressive style, and so much more. We begin, though, with some faith talk. You know, Donald Trump isn't known for being a Christian who wears his faith on his sleeve. So for him to actually talk to us about the things of God is always enlightening. So here is some of that conversation that took place both inside the Trump National Golf Club and outside on the 18th hole as well. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, your popularity with evangelicals. What do you make of it? I know you're asking others to say, who knows, but, but what's your take on it exactly? Well, I love them. I mean, I, I am one of them in a true sense. I'm Protestant, I'm Presbyterian. I've, I've gone to communion so often and I love going to communion. I feel it makes me feel so good and so pure, which is hard for me to feel, but it makes me feel so good. And I just have a great relationship. You see that in the polls where I do so well with the evangelicals. And uh, some people are surprised to hear that, you know, coming from Manhattan and being in the kind of a business I'm in, which is a very big, tough business. Mm -hmm. But my relationship with the evangelicals has been very special. They are very special people. Mm -hmm. The Bible. You talked about yeah, the art of the deal. Great book. The Bible, even better. Why is that for you? What well, is there's it? so many things like, you know, uh, you take uh, whatever you want to say. There's so many things that you can learn from it. Uh, Proverbs, the chapter, never bend to envy. I've had that thing all of my life where you're, people are bending to envy. And they're just, it's actually, it's an incredible book. So many things you can learn from the Bible and you can lead your life. And I'm not just talking in terms of religion. I'm talking in terms of leading a life, mm -hmm. even beyond a religion. There's so many brilliant things in the Bible and you can read it over and many people have done this and they've led their life that way, but you can read it hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, David, they say great art, like the Mona Lisa. Some people, they look at it 
and it doesn't look as great at the beginning. And then they'll look at it. By the time they see it many, many times, it becomes the most, they can't take their eyes off it. Whereas art that's not great, you look at it, it looks beautiful at the beginning, but you don't, you get tired of it. The Bible is special. The Bible, the more you see it, the more you read it, the more incredible it is. And the more you realize, it's like a great, you, you could say, I mean, I don't like to use this analogy, but like a great movie, a great, incredible movie. Mm-hmm. You'll see it once, be good. You'll see it again. You see it 20 times and every time you'll appreciate it more. The Bible is the most special thing. Let me tell you a little bit about the word on the street. And you and I, you know, we've, we've talked before and, and I can give it to you straight, which is this. The word on the evangelical street is there are evangelicals that really are interested in voting for you, but they want you to tone down the insults a little bit. They think that they can get there to vote for you if you could tone it down a little. Do, do you see that criticism at all? I do, and I can understand it 100%. But, you know, I am a certain type of person. And over the years, I've made tremendous deals, and they've been rough and tumble. And I've dealt with some terrible people and some good people, but I've dealt with some really terrible people, like our country is dealing with. If you look at who our country is dealing with, look at, I I don't even want to mention names, because frankly, I'll probably, if I win, I'll have to be dealing with the people. At least I want to be starting off even where we can maybe get along. There are some that I think will come over because I think they say, well, he may not be perfect, but he is one of us and he's going to do a great job for the country. Mm. And ultimately you do need that. Frank wants in that whole Iowa thing where, you know, you were asked about whether or not you've asked God for forgiveness and you're like, no, not really, not too much. But, but beyond all of the forgiveness stuff, do do you believe that it's important to ask God for forgiveness? How do you feel? Well, I do. I think it's great. And I consider communion to be a very important thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I go to church and I take communion, I consider that asking for forgiveness in my own way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I do think it's a great thing. And I think it's an important thing and it makes you feel good. And frankly, I view communion and maybe I was getting a little bit cute and we were all having fun. And by the way, you will know it. The audience, which was largely evangelical, gave me a standing ovation when I left. I got the biggest standing ovation of anybody. And we were all having fun. I didn't know it was going to be such a big deal. And actually, it turned out not to be a big deal because the polls came out right after that and the evangelicals like me. So I was happy about that. But no, I think uh, communion to me is very important. I think also, you know, somebody said right after that, and I was talking to a very good group of people and a pastor, Mm. and they said to me that one of the things you've done a really good job on is raising your children. You know, my children Mm. are terrific children. They're doing a great job. They're hardworking. They did well in school. They went, you know, it's, it's an important element. And to me, that's a part of the whole process of God and religion and study. And they've been terrific. So I'm very proud of my children. Tell me about God. When I say God, tell me about God. What do you, who is God to you? What, what, what are some of your thoughts on this? Clearly you're a smart man. You're a smart businessman. You've contemplated this before or how, have you contemplated well, it? I'd say God is the ultimate. You know, you look at this, you look at this incredible, here we are in the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. How did I ever own this? I bought it 15 years ago. I made one of the great deals they say ever, this piece of land. I have no mortgage on it as you, I will certify and represent to you. We'll see that. And I was able to, you know, buy this and make a great deal. That's what I want to do for the country, make great deals. We have to, we have to bring it back. But God is the ultimate. I mean, God created this. And, you know, here's the Pacific Ocean right behind us. So, uh, Nobody, no thing, no, there's nothing like God. When, when you're in front of these swarming, huge crowds, look, you've got a healthy ego, newsflash, but does that feed the ego or do you feel more hu- humility? Do you feel a little bit more humble by, by this whole arena situation? Well, when I fill an arena like we did the American Airlines Center last night, 
in Dallas. It's funny that the people were so enthusiastic that it was easy to do. Somebody, you know, because I don't mm. believe in teleprompters. If I would read my speech, it would be so much easier. Mm. And you never get in trouble, which mm. is also good, right? But you read a speech and you read it and it goes, and then you leave and nobody goes crazy. I give it very much from the heart. You know, the greatest speaker I think I've ever witnessed was Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. Mm. And he would speak the power of positive thinking. He would speak so much and he'd bring it into modern day life. He'd talk about success stories and people that were successful and became alcoholics and then they conquered it. Or he didn't so much discuss drugs because drugs weren't the big thing in those days, but mm -hmm. alcohol was a very big problem. And he gave some of the greatest sermons ever. And he was just period, but regardless of sermon, he was just a great speaker. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't reading anything. And I grew up watching that. He wasn't reading like, and I've had plenty of pastors and ministers that read. It's not the same thing. Norman Vincent Peale would get up and his arms would be flailing. And, and you hated to leave church because you wanted him to go on further. Mm -hmm. What do you say to evangelicals uh, in terms of them that you can believe that they, they can trust you? Well, when a pro-choice question was asked to me many years ago, as a businessman, it was never even asked to me. You know, it's something you asked and you, it was never even asked. And it was just like, oh, and if you ever saw the end of that whole thing, it was because it was one particular quote. And I'm a business guy. And I sort of said, I hate the concept. And I do. I hate the concept of abortion. Hate the concept, and as you know, I've changed over years. I mean, mm -hmm. over years, I've changed. But uh, I think that, in terms of the evangelicals, and I think one of the reasons I'm doing so well, I am a Christian. I'm a Protestant. I'm a Presbyterian. Read a lot of evangelicals, by the way, and a lot of Tea Party people, and everybody was there. It was absolutely amazing. I don't think, just to answer the question, I don't think I ever thought it would be this big this fast. Religious liberty, the Kim Davis thing, uh, you think an accommodation should be made at some point? Another, this thing has kind of moved on at this point, but there's going to be other cases coming yeah, up. Yeah, it'll, it'll go on for a while, and you're also going to have new elections coming up, and changes could be made, and lots of things can happen. But right now, we have some very terrible Supreme Court justices, and mm. frankly, they should have at least had that as a state's right issue and the whole thing is very sad but you would think that maybe she could let other people in her office sign but that's going to go on for a while and you're going to have a lot of them going for a while it was a terrible decision to put her in jail i thought mm -hmm. uh, it was not good and caused lots of problems but at some point i guess probably other people will sign and they'll get it done you know at the same time we are a country of laws Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court has ruled whether you agree with these justices or not. Obama's put some real beauties up there. But uh, that's always been a tough situation. And I think you're going to have a lot of other cases. You're going to see this go on and on, David. Mm -hmm. What kind of justices would a President Trump be looking for? What do you want to see in a Supreme Court justice? Well, I would like to see great scholars. They have to be great mm -hmm. scholars. Probably they have to be within the law, you know, in terms of law background. You know, you don't actually have to be. And maybe we should do that because it hasn't happened in a long time. But I would want to see scholars and I'd want to see very conservative people. I want to see people that love the country. I think we have some people that probably don't love the country enough. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to see people that love the country and want to do the right thing. Donald Trump and some of his thoughts here on the Brody file. You know, as the campaign rolls along, he'll need to probably go deeper on substance. But so far, voters seem to like what they hear. All right, coming next, Donald Trump. Muslims. We know our current president is one. Right. You know he's not even American. We need this First question. This is man. question. <laughs> but anyway, we have training camps growing where they want to kill us.
Mm -hmm. That's my question. When can we get rid of it? We're going to be looking at a lot of different things. Well, you know, the media didn't like that answer, but here's the reality. Why should Donald Trump defend President Obama's faith? I mean, do you think the president would actually defend Trump's faith? <laughs> Plus, the media ran with the storyline that Trump is looking at a few things to do with all the Muslims in the country. Hey, that's not what he said. He was actually responding to the Muslim training camps that have reported to be in the United States. Like of all. Anyhow, let's delve into the subject of Islam a little bit more. You know, in our first interview with Trump, we asked him actually about all of this and the so-called peaceful religion. You said one time in an interview that there, and just recently, that there's a, there's a, he said on O'Reilly actually, there's a Muslim problem right. in this world. What, right. what do you mean by that exactly? Well, Bill O'Reilly asked me, is there a Muslim problem? And I said, absolutely yes. In fact, I went a step further. I said, I didn't see Swedish people knocking down the World Trade Center. And, you know, it was very interesting. I thought that was going to be a controversial statement. And somebody, I think it was Dennis Miller, when they introduced me, him, he was doing like an analysis of my interview. He said, I love it. The guy said what the truth is. He didn't mince his words. He didn't say, oh, gee, no, there's not a Muslim problem. Everybody's wonderful. And by the way, many, many, most Muslims are wonderful people. But is there a Muslim problem? Look what's happening. Look what happened right here in my city with the World Trade Center, and lots of other places. So I said it, and I thought it was going to be controversial, and actually it was very well received. I think people want the truth. I think they're tired of politicians. They're tired of politically correct stuff. I mean, I could have said, oh, absolutely not, Bill. There's no Muslim problem. Everything's wonderful. Just don't don't forget. Just forget about the World Trade Center problem, blah, 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 blah. You know, but you have to speak the truth. We're so politically correct that this country is falling apart. Donald Trump talking Islam on the Brody file. All right, back in a moment. We have a lot. Well, actually, we, we keep them in a certain place, a very, very nice place. But people send me Bibles. And, you know, it's very interesting. I get so much mail. And because, like, you know, I'm in this incredible location in Manhattan, you can't keep most of the mail you get. There's no way I would ever do anything to do negative to a Bible. So what we do is we keep all of the Bibles. We just, I would have a fear of, of doing something other than very positive. So actually I store them and keep them and sometimes give them away to other people. But I do get sent a lot of Bibles. And I like that. I think that's great. The Tea Party, I think, loves me because I tell it like it is. I talk about our country being in decline. They don't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. But unless you know about it, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. I talk about China ripping us. I talk about all of the things that's happening with energy and energy. We could be self-sufficient in energy. We don't need OPEC. We don't need anything. And yet we're not allowed to take the oil out of the ground. We're not allowed to go after natural gases. We're not allowed to do what we can do. We would be in a period of wealth like this country has never seen if we were allowed to just sort of let go, get rid of regulation. I look at the regulations in this country as a builder. You build a building, environmental impact statement. Sometimes it takes 10 years before you can build. And then by the way, at the end of the 10 years, they say no, because there's a piece of grass that is going to be disturbed. And, and I'm being totally serious about right. that. A piece of grass is going to be disturbed and there's not that much of it. So you have to keep thousands of people out of jobs. You have to stop building housing, et cetera, et cetera. And other countries see this and they watch this and they laugh. We have to make America rich again and make America great again. You can't do it without making it rich. Mm. And right now China's taking all our money and others, many other countries, Mexico, Japan, 
Many other countries are mm -hmm. taking our money. Saudi Arabia, they make a billion dollars a day and they don't pay us anything for protection. They don't pay us anything. And they would if we had the right messenger. Mm -hmm. And then when we have a meeting, last week the president, had he, they won't even show up to the meeting. Mm -hmm. They tell him we're not coming mm -hmm. or we're not having the king. So give me a break. So we'll make our country great again. Donald Trump through the years here on The Brody File. All right, we're back next with a classic Donald Trump moment. See you in a moment. You know what's amazing is that his message has not changed. You know what's amazing that everything he's going to say at the rally is not going to change. In fact, it's going to be annotated and shown as to just how the same it is and how he strived to get America to some greatness, which we were. And yet in 2019, they conspired. They decided it's over. Let's kill the economy. Let's lock everyone in their house. It's over. We need to be a little bit more assertive. A little bit, give them an inch, and they take a mile. And that is exactly what they did. They took a mile. All the while, everyone and their mother has been in rabbit holes. Looking at this, looking at that, rather than focusing on one battle at a time and the correct battle at the time. That's what we needed to do. So when you're in Wonderland and you don't know where to go, try to take the pill that makes you stand tall like a giant and gets you to be super tall. On that note, much love to all of you. I will see you tomorrow on time and hopefully with my audio very well sorted out. God bless. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small And the ones that mother gives you don't do anything at all Go ask Alice